I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Raya and the Last Dragon. Let's catch you up. My name is Raya. Our lands have been at war for as long as we can remember. Our people never see eye to eye. My daughter, I believe our people can come together again, but someone has to take the first step. Now, in order to restore peace, we must find the last dragon. I wish to join this fellowship of butt kickery. Let's go. We'll have to watch our backs. We're not the only ones looking. Six years of searching. Please, let this be it. Almighty Sisu! Who said that? We really need your help. Ah, I'm gonna be real with you. I'm not, like, the best dragon. Have you ever done, like, a group project, but there's, like, that one kid who didn't pitch in as much, but still ended up with the same grade? Uh, we're doomed. You and the dragon are coming with me. Hmm, my sword here says we're not. broken. You can't trust anyone. Maybe it's broken because you don't trust anyone. You just have to take the first step. I just shape changed. Dragons can do that? Look how close my butt is to my head. It's gonna make digestion so much faster. In theaters or ordered on Disney Plus with Premier Access, March 5th. Welcome back to the long running, ever moving Disney shows. Joining us again is Daniel Floyd of New Frame Plus. Hello. Welcome back, Dan. It's been a while. It has. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I did my uh, checking, and last time you were on was for our show on Moana, which uh, went out in December 2019, which uh, I did my calculations. That was roughly 378 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And as we said on last week's fairly explosive Ralph Breaks the Internet and Frozen 2 show, we wanted to wait until Disney did something really fantastic before coming back on to this series, hoping that that would put us beyond whatever their next creative slump might be and while Raya only just came out and we don't know what the future holds it's certainly more a case of back on track than the disappointing to many previous two um just to fill you in Dan the uh, uh Frozen 2 actually didn't fare too badly it was just kind of well there was a couple of a lot of missed opportunities with this one Ralph Breaks the Internet got Maya mad it got me it got me mad too but Maya gave this freaking amazing speech on there regarding predatory game mechanics Mm. Yeah, no, it's I, it's I, I watched those two as well just to like catch up and make sure I was uh, up on kind of the Disney release continuity as, before mm-hmm. uh, watching Raya and yeah, it, it's uh, definitely things definitely took a little bit of a dip there for a couple films, but mm-hmm. uh, I this was a real delight following those two up. Oh, it absolutely was. Uh, it was um, also the first time that we'd actually taken Disney up on their early access the 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 buying it for thirty dollars for the the buying access to it for thirty dollars beforehand it's it's going to be out in june for everyone is that right yeah yeah Yeah. um which ultimately if you're if you're a family 
that's slightly cheaper than going to the cinema. Slightly, it's, it's a, a lot cheaper. It's a lot cheaper, <laughs> especially if you're not gonna if you're just eating your own food at home. Mm. Um, but if you're on your own, uh, then that is less of an appealing prospect. And I feel like Raya may have, might, may have lost out on quite a lot of sales for people wherein this amount didn't scale for them being on their own. So it's a, it's possible that fewer people will be able to even listen to this episode yeah. for that reason. My guess is one of the reasons that they decided to kind of trial run the early access with Raya is that they figured the bulk of their audience was going to be families anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So <clears throat> I've got some info on this, just everything I could glean from Wikipedia and, um, and, and sort of watching some of the um, uh, responses to it on, on YouTube. I, f I found um, some of the best, juiciest things we could actually get was actually feedback from Southeast Asian viewers who were um, in, in many, like in, in some cases a little critical, and but at the same time, they were almost all of them were thrilled in some capacity to actually see some representation. So we're definitely talking about that. Okay, so it was co-directed by Don Hall, who has been with Disney for 22 years, usually in a story capacity, starting with Tarzan in 1999. But he co-directed Winnie the Pooh, the 2011 film that most people don't know exists, and their last hand-drawn theatrical release. Now, you said... Because a lot of this actually got animated at home by various Disney animators, Sharon, you said that that pretty much is the death knell for hand-drawn animation because people don't have light desks at their house I, and you've got to ship that stuff back yeah, and forth. Yeah, I, I did have another think about that and it's it, it, it doesn't eliminate the possibility of hand-drawn animation at all, but you're talking graphics tablets and um, mm. and electronic pencils, really, for people to do that kind of animation at home. It's still entirely feasible for them to make 2D movies. However, the, the traditional skills, the rostrum cameras, the stuff being done on paper, the light, light yeah. desks, that kind of stuff, I think if they are going to continue with these processes, and that's, of course, not to say that they're going to do this out of choice once they're able to bring people back in mm. uh, to a more traditional office. But I don't see it being cost-effective or practical to courier work around the country to do it that way. Dan, have you got any insight on this? It would definitely be more challenging. It's funny you mentioned, actually, the uh, the shift from the like uh, to paper to the more digital way of working with 2D, because they'd as I understand it, they'd started making that shift on Winnie the Pooh right at the end. Like, right. even though they had lots of the old classic animators still there, they made, I believe that was the first 2D Disney film that they did try animating fully, like, on tablets digitally. Right. And it is hard to tell the difference, honestly. And maybe they'd started that uh, on Princess and the Frog as well. I I'm not certain, mm -hmm. but... I, they were deliberately uh, uh, emulating the Xerox style of uh, of the sort of the 60s and 70s. So they would have tried to make it look exactly like that pencil scratch. Yeah, exactly. While still like benefiting from everything that digital uh, that digital g gives yeah. them and the uh, workflow efficiencies and everything. I think it's fully possible if Disney wanted to. And it it's wild that it's only been 10 years since 2D has been gone. It feels like it's been an eternity. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Well, it was eight but, years and then a million years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like, I, I, I still have hope that they could if they wanted to, especially given how uh, like 2D still lives on so strongly in, mm. in television and, uh, and just elsewhere around the world. But, uh, but yeah, like honestly, the feat of 
producing any of these films from home is a bonkers achievement and I'm astounded at how well and relatively smoothly Disney and so many other companies have made this work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely definitely commendable. And, um, uh, Don Hall that I started off uh, talking about before also directed big hero six, which was one of the, uh, sort of the lesser recent Disney's that we talked about. I think you liked it more than us, but, um, it, it it didn't like like land with that in that same way quite with audiences although it made a decent amount of money as I'm about to uh, com- uh, draw comparisons in terms of box office because the landscape has definitely changed right now. Um, the other Raya co-director is Mexican American Carlos Lopez Estrada, director of live action films like Blind Spotting and Summertime. The screenplay was by Vietnamese American theatre writer. Ki Nguyen and Adele Lim, the Malaysian producer who co-adapted the screenplay for Crazy Rich Asians. And considering how wonderful that film is and how much less wonderful the book is, that speaks volumes to her talent. Raya is set in a fantasy land called Kumandra, inspired by the Southeast Asian cultures of Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Indonesia, Timor-Leste and the Philippines. To do background research, the filmmakers and production team traveled to all of these countries as Disney's animators are wont to do, also drawing inspiration from the cultures of Myanmar, Malaysia, Singapore, and Brunei. The artist, and we saw quite a bit of her in the in, in the scant making of materials that Disney have released. Again, we talked about this when we covered Frozen Dan, the they're so tight-lipped now. It is true, yeah. though I not to sidetrack it again. I'm so grateful seeing that they at least seeing Frozen Two get a full blown documentary series about its production was so refreshing, and I hope that is a sign of that practice coming back. It it, it just shocked me looking at it, like feeling like it has been ages since they pulled back the curtain on a production even a little bit, and it's still like still like highly curated, but even so, like that. It, uh, it was so wonderful to see just because like how many of us are so into film and film craft and art just from behind the scenes features like the Lord of the Rings like DVD sets alone that is masterclass level stuff yeah that was actually I, like, what made me want to produce films myself <laughs> exactly like and I feel very much the same way like watching stuff like that helped me understand how this stuff gets made and get more excited and inspired to want to make that sort of stuff myself and it feels like that there's been less of that for like the next generation of people to experience growing up and so I'm like just watching that Frozen documentary even though I didn't I felt that the Frozen 2 is a bit weaker as a, one, one of the Disney films having that behind the scenes look is just so valuable <laughs> I've just found it it's called Into the Unknown Making Disney's Frozen 2 we completely missed that <laughs> I highly recommend I, I recommend checking it out like not because necessarily it's going to give you it's I don't it's not going to change your mind about uh, the film itself right. but it is useful just it's helpful to seeing the behind the scenes look again and an yeah. in-depth look at it and it's also useful just because like they are still speaking of their process and walking through kind of like the ups and downs and the uh, the high points and low points of production and like this song's not working yet we haven't nailed it yet we're still working like we're still trying to right. we're still trying to nail it just all of that 
all of that sort of production drama that usually is reserved for film like high points, like sort of the, the big victory stories. And you usually don't get these about a film that just lands kind of like a, this is okay, but it could be a little stronger. Mm. It's, it's useful. I feel like perspective seeing that, that even these films that don't blow the doors down and just uh, set the world on fire still have these same stories and they're still being developed through the same process and it's I don't know I feel like it's value like uh, worth checking out even absolutely uh, yeah just uh, uh yeah. in terms of it being available it, that kind of industry information stuff it needs to be out there if they want the industry to continue because for up and coming animators to to see this and think yeah that's the kind of animation that I would like to get into mm. It, they need to cultivate that culture and you don't do that by not telling anybody what goes on behind the scenes yeah so yeah no what I did was I just clicked on extras under Frozen 2 and it was like mm, yeah just this tiny little thing and it was like wait well there's nothing to do with Frozen 2 and I completely bypassed the Into the Unknown series I do I know like Disney have to it or something yeah <laughs> uh, Disney Plus has a whole section um, that's the extras and things that you would expect to find on Blu-rays and DVDs. And In fact, you know, I feel like I saw this. It is actually the next thing recommended after Disney's Frozen 2, but it just says Into the Unknown, Disney's Frozen 2. So is this just like the music video for Into the Unknown? And I didn't look at the word making because it was too small. It is very small. <laughs> so, okay, right. So... Let's, I was uh, hoping that Raya would have a similar, uh, yeah. similar like robot sort of uh, making of, and lots of that interesting detail. And maybe it eventually will. I am sure that <laughs> they have to gather. It will, but it'll has... be compiled of Zoom calls. Yeah, everyone's at yeah. home. <laughs> That's honestly like not to just keep on. I know we've really completely sidetracked from what you were talking about That's before, right. but the the fact that all shot production on this film was achieved in a work from home like situation is. A real feat, as as impressive as it is, as that so many companies, like game companies and film companies, have managed to make production work in that state. It is difficult to make that work. Like not being able to just walk around to people's desks and have impromptu conversations. It's it's a harder way to do this work, and I think we're going to be feeling the effects of this on films more in mm. the next few years. Mm. That like the because it's going to be a lot harder for films for the next few years to have gone on these like research trips yeah. to do more thorough stuff like pre-production work and study it's going to be it's a uh, like the challenge has just begun on that front however if you think about raya then as a, a kind of a proof of concept mm. example of the fact that they can do this and produce a finished movie that way uh, the it, it sort of puts the amount that it took into uh, kind of relief if you think of like Tangled the amount they spend on Tangled mm. but a lot of that was investment in the, the technology tech and the mm. yeah abilities to actually adapt their ad uh, their animation into mm. something that was a much more um, elegant style because pre-Tangled we had Bolt yeah so if, this, <laughs> if you think of Raya then more as a, a sort of a transitionary film in terms of uh, production mm. methods it's almost like the rescuers down under of, of its of its day. Yeah. As in like uh, the, the the big thing that came out before it was the you know equivalent of Little Mermaid and everyone went to see that. And um, the the next thing could be their beauty and the beast, yeah. but they've gotta 
get I mean th- this is effectively the testing of the caps system yeah, that yeah. Um, well we t- we talked about this briefly with the them. um the Ralph and uh, Frozen 2 show didn't we that the this there seems to be this cycle that Disney goes through where mm. they find a new thing and then they invest heavily in the new thing and it doesn't take off immediately and then it does take off and then they do really well for a, mm. a period of time and then they run the yeah. new thing into the ground <laughs> That's not doesn't sound like Disney to me. <laughs> um, but like interesting, looking at each of these films, uh, the, each one of these films they make uh, using these like three D digital tools, they are having to develop new new tools and tech for ev- for the challenges of every film. Whether that's really stepping up their approach to hair or cloth or light rendering or whatever else, but each one of those examples of massive research and technical wins carries forward to the next thing they can keep on using and expanding and building on it they're just building up just a ever larger arsenal of tools that they could just keep on using for quote-unquote free on the next film and like Honestly, I'm f- just looking at Raya and how beautiful this film is. It mm. you feel the history of the last ten years of 3D work and study. It's really impressive. I feel like if the the two major fields they pushed forwards in terms of the visuals of the animation are the diffusion of light, mm. uh, as in they had uh, to, to have so many different colored lights on screen at once, and to be able to to get that mix of colors to not be a mess, but to in fact enhance the beauty of what you're seeing. Um, that was a huge deal. And also food. I have never seen a film with so much delicious food that wasn't live action and crazy rich Asians. That was the one I thought of when they were talking about how um, one of the YouTube reviewers we watched said that the, there was so much amazing Southeast Asian food and delicacies and fruit and things like that just going on in the background that it would make people long for their mother's cooking. And I thought Crazy Rich Asians did precisely that as well. <laughs> okay, so the, the Thai artist Fawn Vera Sunthorn served as the head of story for the film and the filmmakers formed the Southeast Asian Story Trust, a collective of cultural consultants for the film, which included Dr. Steve Aransak, an associate professor of Lao anthropology at California State University. This reminds me of the Moana um, cultural consultation board. Moana was what I was thinking of. I mean, I would say in terms of how personal they felt, Moana is just streets ahead, but probably Uh. because it was working with a much smaller and close-knit team whereas this was more sort of uh, consultants and experts from various different locations all feeding in their own viewpoints Mm. it's one's not necessarily worse than the other in by any means but i just i found the personal nature of moana appealed to me more uh james newton howard scored this film and it's his fourth for disney the other three We're in the early 2000s, the action-focused Treasure Planet and Atlantis The Lost Empire, both of which uh, lost Disney a huge chunk of money and were technical achievements, and Dinosaur, which did did make bank, but did not become a beloved and influential classic. Raya, which was supposed to have launched theatrically in November last year if we didn't have COVID, has to date made... And this is just today, so this is going to change, hopefully by a lot over time, $87 million worldwide, and thus it's not quite made its $100 million budget back. 
it is tough to accurately guess how much it would have made pre-COVID. Um, going back to Big Hero 6 that I mentioned before, which uh, sort of launched in around about the 2014, about the same time as Guardians, uh, it made north of $600 million, so you could maybe expect that. Um, but the big Broadway musical with the princesses and self-critique, Frozen 1, made $1.2 billion. So I think there, there are certain things that Disney does to make huge bank, and I feel like Raya was never going to be the the hit that Frozen was no, in the same way. Definitely not. Definitely. No. But if we, uh, one of the criticisms leveled at the film absolutely fairly uh, is that it has a lack of Southeast Asian representation in the cast, as the film setting is in a fictional land that represents Southeast Asia. Most of the cast are of East Asian heritage, and there's definitely a difference, with the exception of Kelly Marie Tran, uh, Butler T. Tran, uh, Wang and Harrison, Felicia Wade of Discussing Film pointed out uh, in her review, commenting on the disheartening lack of accurate representation in the vocal cast and the fact that it misses the mark at its core. So if you're going to set out to represent Southeast Asia, uh, that the, um, I mean, uh, Daniel Day Kim is uh, Korean-American. That's uh, Chief Benja, um, Raya's father. Uh, Kelly Marie Tran is Vietnamese-American. Uh, Namari is played by Gemma Chan, who is British-Asian of Chinese and Hong Kong heritage. Uh, Sisu is Aquafina, uh, Chinese-Korean-American. Uh, Boon is Isaac Wang, Asian-American. I think he's um, he one of the... Does, he is of Southeast Asian descent. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so is Talia Tran. Yeah, Talia Tran. Uh, Little Noi, the, the baby, uh, the, the con baby. Um, Tong is played by Benedict Wong. He is uh, British Asian of Hong Kong heritage. Uh, Virana, that's um, Namari's mother. Sandra Oh of South Korean heritage, raised in Canada. Uh, Dang Hu, the chieftainess of Talon Land, is Lucille Soong, who's been acting for decades. Uh, and uh, she has Chinese and Hong Kong heritage. And uh, Tuk Tuk, Alan Tudyk, is from El Paso, Texas, and uh, <laughs> and white as the filling of an Oreo. It, it feels like if we, we can give them a good faith argument, they wanted an all-Asian cast. And Kelly Marie Tran ended up um, coming back to the role, uh, but she was replacing a, a Filipina actress named Cassie Steele. Cassie Steele. She's a Filipino descent on a Filipino descent, side. right. Yeah. Um, but that was mainly down to the fact that Raya went from being very stoic, kind of like the live-action Mulan, to being much more kind of a... They directly said Star-Lord, so she's mm. like an adventurer, a little bit of a... They like falling on her ass more. A bit more lively, more and, a bit yeah, more... Um, bouncy. Bouncy and, and, and sort of child that yeah. childlike wonder element. So, I mean, that uh, for the lead to be uh, Southeast Asian, that is at least a triumph. I can completely understand Southeast Asians who are like, okay, you were so bloody close. Um, it, however, luckily there is a hell of a lot of uh, cultural visual points that are um, portrayed throughout the film, uh, where you know little elements that a lot of Westerners will just breeze straight by, but will make um, Southeast Asians go, oh my god, I recognise that, and that is from you know, uh, one of the various countries I mentioned above and cultures. Um, so it's kind of a two steps forward, half a step back, a one step back, stumble forward again. <laughs> I think that the, in terms of the visual um, elements going on in the animation, things like the, the weaponry that they use, yeah. the food, the artwork, that kind of thing. It's there seems to be a parallel to me, and we've we've talked about this before. When when people are making CG animation, one of the things that tends to make CG look less good is when 
it's too perfect. It's too um, clean. Uh, what's the yeah? What's the word I'm thinking of? Not not bland, but the, it doesn't have those imperfections and details that make it look real. And I it think it lacks texture and wear. Yeah, indeed. And I think this is one of the things that that if you're doing a film that's intended to give a the the feel of um, a, a particular culture or collection of cultures by including details that are real and directly taken from actual elements of those cultures, it's going to feel a lot more alive, a lot more like it's breathing than if you just put in stuff that's kind of a vague idea of that culture, but not specific, Mm. not a particular thing that you've looked at in real life. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dan, anything on the... uh um, representation of cultures before one of the things I was going to ask actually which we could feasibly talk about for an hour are what are our favourite elements especially animation details and notes of cultural authenticity so that's the first major question Dan anything that you noticed that you were like I really like that I honestly in general like I am just myself so not familiar enough with like uh, Southeast Asian uh, just cultures in general that this Same. a lot of this film was just a wonderful window into just a glimpse of some of it and I know it's it's uh, this is a film that I'm just excited to look up and continue hearing more uh, thoughts about from like from people of Asian descent because that, that I'm I don't have enough of a grounding in it to be able to to like to say or to really with any with any authority, like how good this functions as representation hmm. in any way, but I'm excited to learn more. Like this, this film is a really lovely window into a culture that does not get a lot of visibility uh, over here, and uh, it's it's beautiful looking and really exciting. And like I'm excited to learn more about it. It's it's really interesting. Like the Moana and this are two functionally different kinds of representation right like mm-hmm. moana is taking a like a real culture and their mythology and telling their story like yeah. their actual literal story and but putting a disney spin on it and raya is an original setting and story but is is deeply inspired by the many different cultures it is pulling from mm-hmm. and on the one hand like as an approach that avoids appropriate well it's kind of appropriating, but it is less likely to mishandle another or, or disrespect another people's culture and stories directly. There's a, this, a filter of fantasy and abstraction. Yeah, yeah. Like, but then on the other hand, mashing a bunch of cultures into a large stew and telling a original story that doesn't belong necessarily to, to any of them also means no one's really being directly represented either. Yeah, they do actually mash them into a large stew at the beginning. <laughs> they set out to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, it uh, it both limits and kind of gets you off the hook on on representation in in a in a, in a strange way. When I say um, uh, details, I didn't want to put you on the spot and say, right, Dan, as our South Asian expert, on, <laughs> honestly, sure, now sure. that you're, you're talking about it, I feel like we should have got back on Calvin Wong, who helped us out on Crazy Rich Asians, uh, being of Malaysian descent, absolutely would be able to uh, give us some authenticity on that. Um, but we're going to have to kind of struggle by without him and just um, say that we noticed that there were a lot of things going on in the background. Yeah, honestly, the thing that makes me that I 
am most excited about as tangible improvement in Disney's approach to handling stories and representation from other cultures is just the increase in number of people it like leading production and behind the scenes creating this thing who it's it's not all old white guys anymore yeah yeah <laughs> it's it's still like it's a step it's far from the end of this very long journey of improving the like the approach to just representing and appropriating other cultures respectfully but on the arc from pocahontas to moana to here i feel like there it's encouraging seeing that progress and i hope that that is a thing that just keeps on happening more and more and more and more and more yeah absolutely okay so i got uh, a couple of things that i uh, noted um down um just just things that i particularly enjoyed about uh raya in general and um, most of uh there's there's visual elements uh there's sound elements and then there's thematic elements and I, th I feel like the visuals are the things that strike you first. The world is one of the richest that they've done. Like I said, the um, the diffusion into the lighting just really kind of... It seemed to be going out of its way to have all of these different colours all kind of you know intermingling without turning it into this soup. Like it was... Um, it is a stew, but it's a stew where you can taste individual delicate flavours as, it, as it's going down, as opposed to a British hot pot where it all... Uh, not only takes on the same taste, but the same texture. So potatoes taste exactly like and feel exactly like whatever meat you've got in there. I don't even know how we do that, but it, <laughs> but we do. <laughs> it felt like there were, um, well, I mean, if nothing else, it felt like we were being treated to this amazing buffet, and we were just like, oh, I'd like to try a little bit of this, oh, I'd like some of that. And But at, at the same time, we weren't necessarily um, uh, like choosing for ourselves. We were just being like... Try this. Try this. Try the try the pink stuff. It's delicious. Um, and uh, it, it just it, I could taste the world uh, at several times. It, and, and we were watching it on a grey March morning on a Sunday, a Saturday or Sunday. I think it was, might have been a Saturday um, in England. And it, it just kind of it brought uh, light and colour into our lives, which is especially after a year or so of this, um, very valuable. Very. The fact that this is a world-hopping kind of story as well yeah. allows just the, the scenery and the color palette and everything to just keep on changing throughout the entire film. It's like, it's just such a feast for the eyes. Yeah. Um, I, I put down the establishing shots are some of the absolute best. Uh, that I've seen at Disney, just the whole sort of boom, now we're here. And they punctuate it, uh, I think, five times by just telling us where we are in, in the five different areas. We've got the uh, heart, spine, tail, talon, fang, all named after parts of a dragon. And it's, it's very carefully mapped out so we know where it is and we get repeatedly shown that map. But then when the, the, the text comes up and we get like that kind of smash cut to this establishing shot, it's just like, oh, now you're here somewhere, somewhere new. And again, you can pretty much smell the breeze and it's different to where you were before. It's very immersive. Um, the editing was also... Like I, I always appreciate the way that humor is just hangs on the edit, and it has has a very bouncy, very contemporary style to it. It's almost uh, like the way that the kids talk. It's 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 that's gonna date because they they're using idioms that kids talk now talk with now, but it's kind of a time capsule 
of uh, what 2019 um you know at the, the before times pre covid and just how kids used to hang out and now they can't it it fair whips along and every time you get like a, a neat fun line it cuts away at just the right moment so you're not left hanging with a ah ah waits for audience applause to to a degree it almost seems to acknowledge they're not showing this in a cinema which is mm-hmm. uh, like that that's to a degree, I think um, uh, Bob Chipman said something on the lines of this feels like an, an incredibly lavish, epic beginning to an ongoing animated TV show, if that makes sense. And, I can see that, yeah. And to that end, the way it was edited isn't necessarily what uh, the exact way that they would have done it for uh, if it was for, uh, intended for a grand cinema audience. That's just my supposition. I could be completely wrong. But it had kind of a... I'm not. I don't really want to say intimacy about it, but it had a um, a pace that was fairly rapid. I suppose is the best way of putting it. Like it, it hit the ground running, and you were just kind of like uh, yanked along on this treasure hunt the whole way through. I I think a big part of that is that we're starting with Raya in the middle, if you like, what she thinks is actually coming up on a failed end to her journey. She's already followed all the other rivers. The Tail River is the last one. So she's already feeling like all of her efforts have failed. There is that sort of sense that there's a a chunk of stuff that she did that we didn't see. It's, it's funny you mentioned the pace of this because I hadn't thought of it. And now I actually do want to find some film editor and sit down and pick their brain and ask them if they're like if they edit time, the pace and flow of things differently for like a theatrical release versus TV, because I've never even considered that before. And I, I wonder if that's something that's just a day to day consideration for them. But I was thinking because I just because I watched Frozen 2 and this nearly back to back and they're both kind of fresh in mind. Frozen 2 feels like it is trying to squeeze in so much and it is. It is moving very quickly, but that it, it feels like it doesn't even have enough time for itself that it's moving so quickly. Whereas this is moving at a similar like breakneck pace. It's got so much to squeeze in, but it's a it's an exciting pace that drives you forward. I feel like it just this is functioning so well on a dramatic story storytelling level where we know the stakes, we understand where every character is at, and we're seeing their arcs, like a bunch of different characters' arcs playing out successfully at the same time. Mm. Uh, you, it does not, you don't feel its length at all. Uh, it's got what I defined here as an economy of luscious visual exposition, and it mm. is greatly helped by the narration of uh, Kelly, who, as Raya, uh, basically sort of takes us through it, explains what we're seeing as we're seeing it, and we jump and bounce along. But because everything feels so fresh, it doesn't fall into... If Frozen 2 was a brand new adventure with characters we'd never met before, I know for sure those arcs would have been more satisfying. But Mm -hmm. there was far too much of, let's drag these characters that everyone loves back and not challenge them too much, because if we challenge them, we change them. And Mm -hmm. if we change them, then we can't sell them in the same way. And that bothered me. I, Mm -hmm. I think with the what you say about visual exposition as well, that goes beyond what's going on in the world around them. There's a flow to the facial animation in this, mm. which I've has kind of I suppose this is something that's come gradually with improvements to CG, but 
to be able to convey so clearly now what somebody is feeling and what they're not saying through animated facial expression alone mm. is it, it gives this a layer that I think past CG even as recent as something like Frozen 2 doesn't have mm. It also had a, a real Zelda feel to it from the get-go. Um, and I equated it a little bit with the book that I'd just finished writing at the time, mm. um, which I'd been trying to capture a Zelda feel specifically to the treasure hunting and the uh, going into the temples, the, 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 the making them feel like they were these living, breathing places and the traps weren't necessarily designed to just straight up kill you. But um, it had a similar Zelda feel to Kubo and the Two Strings, which itself kind of mashes together very various Asian cultures mm. in order to tell a Asian feeling story. Well, in part, I think a bit of that comes from the find the thing and put the thing on the other thing and this will do the thing. Yes. <laughs> I suppose... The this'll do the thing is important. There is a dependability about Zelda where it's like Zelda games don't end up buggy in that same way as, as, as most other things. Even somehow Breath of the Wild didn't end up completely broken, which considering the emergent gameplay possibilities in there uh, seems unlikely. But um, the if you do this, this will happen is definitely present in Kubo and Raya. Uh, it has... A speed of wit, which comes down to the uh, the way that the uh, lines go back and forth. I feel like it was almost they they almost shortened the pain of everyone that expressed it in order to not bog down the audience or get the kids too upset because everyone in on that little boat uh, by the middle end had lost lots of people and was mourning it but that that little the scene where they they throw the little pink flowers into the river in in memoriam was was very touching and it, it, was. it achieved a lot the, the pain is felt throughout almost the entire film like you're living in a, a semi-apocalypse wasteland where the the dead are statues around you all yeah. the time and you can kind of see it's you it's really just like a feel of loss in this world that occasionally the high-speed adventure and humor helps you to forget, but then something else kind of brings you back down. Oh, right. Most everybody's lost something here. Oh, right. This person's the only one left of this entire culture. Oh, right. Of course, they don't have parents. This character doesn't have parents. Everyone's lost most everybody in their lives. Like, it's yeah. it's something that is just... The film's not forgetting it. It's just it helping you forget it every now and then. Mm. Yeah. And it's it comes through that sense of loss in more than just the obvious because the, I mean, the, there's there's moments of real pathos when you see things like why uh, Tong responds so much to Noi because he's lost a child, um, and why Noi is so isolated because obviously she's lost her parents. But one of the things that really struck me was the fact that Boone is trying to keep his family's shrimp cafe boat going and he has to be everybody mm. and that's played as a moment of humor but it also does make that point that he's he's all that's left here and he's trying to maintain a sense of normality by keeping that thing going but he's totally isolated at the same time and that i think is something that 
combined with the sense of we've lost all of these people and we really, 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 really hope that once this is fixed, we're going to get them back, is the other thing about this story that makes it pertinent to now. Hmm. And that does give it a little bit of a time capsule feel. Nice. Yeah, they couldn't possibly have planned for that to be no, so relevant. of course not. Um, but it may have developed as they progressed in terms of the, uh, the writing. Yeah. Okay, so um, what are the defining characteristics of the core characters that we see? We'll start, we'll go in basic uh, how they're introduced to the plot order. Uh, a lot of them are, they have one really strong feeling to their character. And in some cases, that element of the story is then taken away as they are turned to stone. Um, so uh, we'll begin with uh, Chief Benger, uh, played by Daniel Day Kim. What, what defines him? What's he trying to do the most? Restore. Mm -hmm. And how? Reaching out. Yeah. So this kind of ties in with one of the major thematic elements of it, which is trust. Put a pin in that. We are coming back to trust. Raya, what defines her? What is she? Um, I would say in her first incarnation, when we see her as a 12-year-old, mm -hmm. she is very keen to take her place in the continuation of her family's responsibility. Mm. She also seems to have never spoken to her father much because she is all about being super defensive <laughs> and, uh, and, and, all, and kind of like playfully violent. And he's like, oh, did I never tell you that I'm peace loving? <laughs> um, I think that's uh, that's kind of it's her natural enthusiasm coming mm. through there. This is just the way it happens to have been channeled it almost seems like um up until the age of uh, 12 she wasn't allowed to touch weapons or even think about combat mm -hmm. and then she you know went way over the top as soon as she was allowed uh, to, uh, to get hands on a pair of escrima fighting sticks mm. <laughs> um when we see her six years later mm. she's much more serious she does still have that sense of fun and it takes the other characters to draw it out of her but she is kind of guilt-ridden over her impulsive decisions as a child and the consequences of those. Yeah. So effectively, with when Benja gets taken away, all hope of reuniting the world was sort of lay in him there. It, it's, it seems like she's, she's desperately cleaving to this quest that he effectively gave her to sort of, you know, bring this stuff back together to bring everyone back together, but she does so in a kind of a grimly determined, kind of funny, sardonic, a little bit Mandalorian-ish. Um, like, you know, I've just got to get this done, as opposed to feeling in her heart the reasons that he had to bring everyone yeah, back well, together. Yeah, well, it's kind of grudging, because the way she sees it, it's his dream, mm. this unity that he wanted, she's seen how that doesn't work. It got messed up by everybody else. Yeah. She played a direct role in accepting it and feels personal responsibility for it not yeah. working. Yeah, there's a, a huge chunk of guilt. And that um, plays into... She, she has something which almost no other Disney character has, certainly not leads, disgust an overabundance of disgust. She says at the beginning, well, you know, people being people. That's when the mighty Sisudatu, the last dragon, concentrated all her magic into a gem and... blasted the Droon away. Everyone that was turned to stone came back. Except... the dragons. 
All that was left of Sisu was her gem. It should have been this big inspirational moment where humanity united over her sacrifice. But instead, people being people, they all fought to possess the last remnant of dragon magic. Borders were drawn, Kumandra divided, we all became enemies, and the gem had to be hidden. But that's not how the world broke. That didn't truly happen until 500 years later, when I came into the story. People being people. And it's like, whoa, 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 that's one of the most important lines in the film, because it illustrates that Raya doesn't trust people and that they have disappointed her so greatly that she doesn't have really any faith that they can uh, get along. Mm. Well, she's by this point, she's started to lose her faith in pretty much everything. She's um, gone out to uh, achieve this quest almost through a sense of duty mm. rather than any uh, personal impetus to do it and like I said when we meet her six years later she's at the end of a trek that so far has turned up nothing so in addition to losing her faith in her father's ideals she's also losing her faith in the mythology that she's been clinging to the scroll and the gem and everything she hasn't seen any evidence that this is going to amount to anything my jaw just dropped. Um, I was just thinking about how even the beast doesn't feel this level of disgust uh, for people. Um, do you remember what she pays Boone in? Jade. She's jaded. She is oh. filled with jade. <laughs> <laughs> now, that just might that. be Disney being at the top of their pun game. It might be intentional. It might not be. But she's jaded. <laughs> I do love the, the first thing uh, once we cut back to adult Raya uh, after kind of us seeing her childhood the mm. first thing we see her do the first thing she draws her sword on is obviously people like she is like she sees on the horizon these distant shapes that are not she can't tell exactly what they are but they are obviously not Drew they are humanoid yeah. and that's the first thing she draws her sword on it's such a I didn't even really notice that until the second time kind of watching through the movie but like that is such a quick cue as to just how much trust has evaporated from her life. Mm. She's very defensive. Um, it's an Ivy Chris sword, which is, well, an Ivy, like, I don't think Ivy blades exist in real life. They'd take your own head off. But um, it, it allowed them to take the, the Chris is a, a really important, was it a Filipino um, weapon? Southeast Asian weapon, the sort of the, the wavy uh, blade to it, uh, but they gave it the ivy um, properties to give her a, an Indiana Jones whip because uh, she's a treasure hunter. I just I love that as a uh, a little statement. It's Indonesian. Indonesian. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, you're right. The idea that she 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 draws her sword on people it, it illustrates that like her defensiveness is playing overtime. I. For some reason, you know, at the beginning when um, uh, uh, Chief Benja gets shot in the leg by a crossbow from the crowd and we never see who used the crossbow. I was convinced when we started watching it the second time. Oh, yeah, there was a whole scene where Namari uh, admitted that it was her who shot her father in the leg and it just isn't there. Like, Namari definitely betrayed her, and that's that's definitely part of this opening sequence, which is why... I think it's just the extent of that, of how much Raya invested in this girl who she felt was like her, and then for that to just come, you know, come turnabout. 
the fact that Namari then later on uses a crossbow and that, you know ends up shooting um, Sisu, it, it feels like, like if nothing else, the fact that it came from her people means she hasn't abandoned the crossbow and has in fact clung to it as mm. some uh, a means of moving forward and decomplicating things as opposed to messing everything up, which is actually what happened each time. Okay, next question. Hand to hand or swords? Blades all day. Right? <laughs> okay, dressy or casual? Only a monster would choose to wear this outfit on the regular. <laughs> we both have single parents who are terrible at telling jokes. We're both warrior women who despise uncomfortable formal wear. And we're both Sisu super fans. Yeah. You know, Fang legend says she's still out there. Sisu? You're kidding, right? Wanna see something? <gasps> are you supposed to have that? No. According to this, after the mighty Sisu blasted away all the drone, she fell into the water and floated downstream. Legends say she's now sleeping at the river's end. Here. Whoa. Really? From one dragon nerd to another. Uh, Namari's defining characteristics. This is uh, the young lady played by Gemma Chan. I would say she is defensive in a similar way to how Raya is defensive. They do actually have a lot in common, especially in their um, their adult lives. But Namari is... She is that way because she's been shaped that way on purpose, whereas Raya has come to that way of looking at the world from she's drawn her own conclusions from the things that she's observed namari there's a very strong sense that a lot of her anger and resentment at the other peoples comes from what she's been taught yeah uh, if you look at the two places they were raised heart is this great big rounded mountain with a, a hole through it illustrating this symbol that they keep you know, using as they're sort of like joining their hands together to illustrate the joining of everyone together. And it's accessible by bridges and you can get there. And it is it is central and in inviting everyone in. Mm. Whereas Fang is a protected little island uh, with an artificial, and they use that word very specifically, canal, mm. that has effectively been dug to keep people out. So they are illustrated as being kind of paranoid and a little bit they, they, the fact that they collect cats and those cats tend to be quite jittery and, and raise their hackles up in that kind of defensive way illustrates that it's almost like the people of fang have been desperately hurt and they never want that to ever happen to them again and that's never explained why or how that could have occurred yeah. I, I do think that it's i'm, I'm not entirely certain that I've had chance to puzzle out how yet, but I do think there is something particularly symbolic in the fact that uh, when we meet Raya, she is exploring the river in the taillands. And that means that as they change the quest to being searching for the gem pieces, she's moving back up the dragon from mm. the tail to the claw, to the up the spine, mm. um, and then finally to the fang, which means that fang was the first river she checked. Hmm. Nice. And Sisu, when we meet her, played by Aquafina, who is one of my favourite actresses at the moment. Uh, she made the, you know, really quite okay um, third Jumanji film 
in, in small parts with her in it, amazing. She's kind of a shining star in everything she's in. She's Ocean's just got this, eight as well. The energy yeah. she brought to that was amazing. And she always seems to be not in it enough. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Every film could benefit from more Aquilina. Yeah. Uh, the Farewell, uh, it feels like a uh, modern day progression of a film in the 90s called Joy Luck Club. Aquafina and uh, her family, it's a very personal thing. And uh, it, it's a drama. And she's amazing in it again. Uh, she 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 brings to the like the little rollers of, of uh, Pecklin in Crazy Rich Asians, and um, here we get her effectively. Like, there's a lot of genie in um, in Sisu in a good way, but at the same time, it's it's like she's not trying to entertain the way that Robin Williams was clearly like. I am an entertainer here. She just has this overabundance of personality and willingness to embrace things, which makes her the polar opposite of Raya. I do think it's quite telling that the first, her first words when she reappears are her siblings' names. She yeah. calls to her, her family. She's a little down on herself as well in terms of the whole... Uh, she describes herself as that kid who sort of takes part in a project, doesn't really do anything and gets the uh, credit anyway. She has pride in her swimming abilities and she doesn't belabor it, but there she is soaked with survivor's guilt. As is Raya. Yeah. So they have that in so common. They, yeah, they do have that in common. All of them do. Like Everyone in this, as Rocket would say, we've all got dead people, but um, they're all in mourning and wanting to try to make amends for it. Except Namari. And I feel like that, like they could have, if Namari was missing her father and that was actually gone into, that might have in some way illustrated like a, a parallel between that and Fang. Mm. I do think you're right there, actually, that the fact that she still has her mother yeah. um, would assuage what portion of survivor's guilt she'd be feeling. Not that she wouldn't be feeling any, but that that would, um, would compensate for some of that. But I do think that um, Namari and in particular her mother are two of the characters who really could have done with a bit more examination to, yeah. to get a bit more depth. In well, this. there's almost a contradiction. Virana, played by Sandra Oh, is really chilled out. Like, she's sort of walking around very regal, you know, with this staff. And when she does, like, a little shadow puppet thing to show the kids how they came to be, and, then, you know, we are clever and we are resourceful. And she just seems to be... Nowhere near as jittery as would be required for Namari to be quite such a nervous person, which she is. I wonder if there's something like defensiveness can come from mm. being previously heavily hurt. It can also potentially be something that comes from seeing everyone around you hurt, but yeah. being having been very careful and protective and just feeling all the more reinforced in that. Like everyone around mm. us is hurting bad. Like uh, Sandra O's oh's character lives it like every it feels like everyone else lives in this apocalypse and like they are part of it now and they just live in it and it doesn't phase them as much anymore whereas i could see and i'm kind of reading into it because you're right i don't think fang gets quite enough screen time and attention mm. i could see a sort of we're not that bad off yet but for the grace of god we need to keep these defenses up and make them stronger if at all possible yeah and particularly with although not even for the grace of god it's like we're not that bad off yet because we're so smart exactly and resourceful. Yeah. No, we must remain like that which basically means we can't make any poor decisions which then puts namari on edge because she knows that at some mm. point she's going to have to take over making those decisions and continue to make what she perceives as the same 
smart, sensible, uh, helpful decisions that her mother has made all this time. When, bottom line, they're kind of just lucky. Yeah. Boone, we've already uh, kind of uh, described as being uh, a kid who has to be everything for everyone. He's remarkably chipper for someone who's missing everyone in his life. But I suppose they couldn't really make him anything else. Because if it was a lonely, sad kid, all the little kids watching would be like, I don't want to watch this anymore. It's an apocalypse. (laughs) I think he's adorable. And I love the fact that they, I think I said this to you the first time we were watching this, the fact that the two... um, boy characters in the group Mm. are the nurturers Boone is the one who always wants to feed everybody and Tong is the very paternal must take care of and protect everybody I absolutely love that Mm. yeah actually uh, Tong uh, played by Benedict Wong uh, does this like it's a strange kind of like he comes in is a barbarian um, there, there seem to be almost, uh, quite a bit of Mongolian um, mixed in there, which of course is, is not, as far as I can tell, not part of South Asia and more towards the sort of Russian end of things. Um, I think Mongolia's more sort of China, Russia, yeah, East Asian side. Well, either way, I, I am ignorant in this capacity, but uh, he was uh, effectively coming on as a barbarian who was trying too hard and then, you know, it doesn't take much prodding at all to just illustrate quite how sad and lonely he is, which was very sweet. And and one of the things that we've already said about Willow time after time is seeing someone who seems, uh, you know, terrifying and, and scary and actually ends up to be very gentle. And so him nurturing little Noi is, is a, a lovely little um, way of, of, of like getting the kids to warm to all, all of these uh, oddballs together. And the the con baby sequence was, uh, you know, hilarious. And I'd I'd already seen it in the uh, uh, second trailer. But um, it had just the fact that the whole city uh, of, uh, that was Talon, wasn't it? Um, Just just had its own kind of, like, it it felt like it's a place that exists in perpetual night. And it's always, uh, you know, a a lantern festival that's also, you know, everything's going on sale. And and, um, it just, it had a richness to it. But it also, around about this time, really made clear the variety of body types they were using, rather than just always going for, um, you know, standard stick-thin people. And I think it just kind of reminded me that Frozen tends to be a bit more kind of thin people and chunky people, whereas this had kind of like a a, a more of a range, if that makes sense. Yeah. Also, Frozen leans a little bit too heavily on the thin girls and chunky boys. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you'd like that. Very true. Yeah. This this is uh, maybe it's just because I have not watched enough things with Benedict Wong. This mm. was like a side of Benedict Wong and a, like a a kind of character I've not seen from him before, and I adore it. That like his performance as Tong is wonderful, especially I guess coming from I so often see him in very serious, yeah, uh, dramatic sort of roles, which I love him in. He's great at, but I just wasn't prepared for sort of the goofball voice performance he gives Tong, and it's so so lovable. It feels like again um, we meet these characters so quickly. And it's like, oh, I'd really like to get to know them some more. And then we're sort of like, you know, we're at the end as soon as this the this um, series of Guardians has been collected. I suppose this underlines how James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy just got them together really quickly in one scene and then kept them together, mm. as opposed mm. to going on a journey and a quest and picking up strays along the way. Mm. 
that might be why it doesn't feel as as kind of close and personal as Moana for me because it's a team. Effort. Yeah, yeah. And mm. um, honestly, the um, the 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 core of it is Raya's relationship with um, Sisu and Raya, what Raya. And Namari think their relationship is, which changes over time. And again, it feels like uh, had this been uh, a, a TV series, and I feel like it's gonna be as well. Like this is, there'll there'll be a um, like the, all the uh, big popular things got something made of them. There, there was is, a big Hero Six series and loads of Tangled stuff, loads yeah, of Frozen loads of stuff. Frozen stuff. There is no reason why it shouldn't. Yeah. With, with Disney Plus, they are. They've got a platform for as much content as they can possibly produce. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I would love to spend some more time in this setting. Yeah. And it feels like there's lots of other stories to tell Mm -hmm. about it. Well, particularly since they're now at the the cusp of rebuilding. So Mm -hmm. seeing that, I mean, um, uh, what's the kingdom called in Frozen? Uh, Arendelle. Arendelle. Arendelle kind of leapt from being uh, functional to being frozen to being functional again. You didn't necessarily get to see much of them reforming it and changing it. And then Frozen 2, they had the threat of it all being swept away, but then it wasn't. We'll have to rebuild. Well, how about we just save it first and then we won't have to rebuild? Yeah, then ah, we can just carry on. Doing, clever there. We can just carry on doing everything exactly the same way as we always did. What was that? That sounds much easier. <laughs> Colonialism and that we should maybe acknowledge it? No, moving on. Oh, heavens no. By the lunchbox, kids. Right, so... Okay, so the Droon. And I was, like, racking my brains the whole way through and because this ties in with the... So I suppose, yeah, we can cover these both at the same time. There's a, a core principle of trust in the film which gets repeated over and over and it it, it forms the centerpiece for the big emotional climax and that is that we need to trust each other um my question regarding trust is it it being one of the absolute key themes how can that as a principle help us now and in future and i believe the key to answering this question is to ask ourselves what the droon symbolize I have something to say about what the dragons symbolise. So okay. maybe if I start with that and then... Since the dragons are technically in kind of opposition, the opposition to the drones, yeah. so yeah. The, the dragons, for me, were kind of a symbol of putting trust and faith in mythology and symbols and tradition. Um, not Not in a rigid way, but in a... The spiritual. The, the spiritual side of things, yeah, exactly. The the um, the essence of life and flow and reaching out and and uh, the fact that Zizu is absolutely obsessed with gift giving and that if, when you reach out to somebody, you should give them something because that shows them that you're inviting their trust in return. Um, the her exact words her, are, I trust you, do you trust me? Yeah, exactly. Now, And, and the fact that her family are water dragons, there's a, a suggestion that there are many, many other dragons that represent the other elements, but specifically her family are water dragons. And that being the thing that the land is absent creates this sense of, of drought and famine and the exact circumstances that so frequently throughout history result in people becoming 
antagonistic towards one another because the resources are so short and they feel like they've got to fight because otherwise they personally or their group or their family is going to be um is going to be threatened and, and isn't going to be able to survive so it's it's the 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 presence of the water dragon specifically is is sort of this sense of of bounty and everybody being able to relax into trusting each other because there will always be enough Dan, any thoughts on the thematic elements at play here? It's uh, the, the druids seem pretty kind of explicitly, I guess, to me to be just a representative, just a physical form of human distrust and greed, like greed in a self-preserving individualist kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, just sort of the the looking out for oneself at the expense of literally anything or anyone around you. Just the, just the opposite of trust, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that, that an individual personally holding on to a piece of the dragon gem means that the drone are kept at bay. It, it sort of gives a sense of you, uh, you resist this, this conflict, uh, sorry, this, conflict and this threat by grasping on to the one thing that will keep them away they are referred to as being born of conflict there's a very video uh, (laughs) gamey style to them Um, one uh, channel I can't remember what the name of this video was uh, but it was around the colour of corruption and in video games more yep wasn't it frame plus was it I don't think it was no 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 (laughs) (laughs) There are, you know, other other channels on video games uh, are out there, but it was on the color of corruption, and it frequently ends up being kind of this dark, malevolent-looking magenta purple mix. Um, it's like whenever they're showing something that's kind of infected or something that's uh, that, that needs to have like this oil-like substance cleared off it, it expresses itself in this sort of the dark purple. So automatically, I got kind of more of a Zelda feel to that because the amount of purple black oil crud you have to shift in breath of the wild if nothing else um but it's a it's i i suspect part of the reason for that is because the purple is a blend of red and blue which symbolically are the elements of fire and water and that's spirit and emotion and those are the two things that cause the most damage when they get messed up uh, it was Rasputin, uh, the color of corruption, how purple is used in video games. Rasputin's channel is very good, by the way. Highly yeah, recommend. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and it was, I was like, you know what? You're absolutely right. And then this is a recurring thing. Um, but I was, I, I felt when I watched it the first time, this is a really beautiful uh, lesson in, in, in being trusting uh, and, and, and the whole taking the first step. And then the second time I watched it, um, Sisu actually kind of annoyed me in her um, what felt like naivety. And I was paying particular attention uh, at the, the breaking point where they have to, you know, they, they all make plans regarding how to get the last bit of stone back from Namari. And um, a couple, most of them are sneaky. And uh, Sisu's like, no, just give her a gift and then she'll trust you and you trust her and then everything will be great. And then Namari breaks out a crossbow illustrating that she didn't trust. And she's got her finger on this hair trigger while pointing it at the last dragon. And it's like, Namari, 
take your finger off the trigger and put the crossbow down. <laughs> this is crazy. And and effectively, like, the the story, the narrative is saying Raya did this by not trusting Namari. She uses her uh, sword protectively to try to stop Sisu being shot with the exact same weapon her father was shot by when he was trusting. And it's like, honestly, trust is not binary. It's not you either trust someone completely and utterly and completely, or you don't trust them at all. There are gradations of trust. Mm. And it felt like they were oversimplifying things, and at the same time proving Sisu wrong by how little Namari actually trusted, even when trust was given to her. Mm. There's also... Namari's Namari's like original original betrayal was set up with a gift as well yeah like she in giving a gift to someone else so i uh like like to me that feels like that lends even more credibility to her even a, a gift from someone else does not signify anything she's used that trick herself yeah it's with that same there bit. is a phrase fool me once shame on you fool me twice <laughs> shame on me that exists because trust is not a binary thing mm. it can be eroded but if it can be eroded that means it's not one single solid block that exists in totality or not at all. You can have some trust left for a person. You can do things that allow you to be kind of ever so slightly on the back foot. So, for example, Namari turns up and you're like, have you got any weapons? No, okay, then I'm going to come out with my hands up and you know what I'm going to do? I'm also going to not be wearing this poncho because the poncho makes it look like Raya is hiding something and she has got her sword, meaning she's not actually trusting her. So visually speaking, there is that not being given. Mm. But then she could just have shot her with a sleeping dart and is like, night, night, are we going to take your thing? Because we trust you to have brought the thing, but we don't trust you not to mess everything up like you probably did before with that crossbow bolt. And... She does mess everything up. She shoots the last dragon. Ultimately, bad experiences, the amount of disgust that Raya has in the world can only be reinforced by being more disappointed with people rather than simply making your conclusions about people based on one thing ever and then going just, well, you know, people are just like this. This level of being jaded actually comes from being let down again and again and again and again. And that kind of disappointment and frustration and ultimately anger isn't something that can necessarily be overcome with... And again, this is, this is a trap that movies have a tendency to fall into because of the running time that they have. Um, it's it's not one big dramatic gesture of trust. Mm. It's multiple small extensions of trust that are reinforced and not broken. And that made me think, this is a world where everyone is altruistic. People are frightened and everyone's afraid to make the first move and they all care about each other, but people are basically good to their core. Where are the scumbags? This does not represent reality. And then I realised, oh, it's the Droon. Now, it's just a reading, but ultimately, you can take the scumbags who aren't going to listen to anyone else and are just going to take and they take and they take and they take to be the Droon. And we don't have to trust them because they'll only ever do the same thing over and over again. If you, you know, reach out to a Droon and go, Droon, I'm going to hug you. <laughs> Guess what's happening to you? And the Droon even, like, give you a little clue. There's a scene in an episode of Red Dwarf called Demons and Angels that we covered when we covered Red Dwarf Season 5, where an alternate version of Crichton is 
the best version of himself. He's holy and gentle and calm and minus the usual anxiety that Crichton feels. And he's very, very trusting. And he approaches the alternate evil version of the Red Dwarf crew, who are violent and psychopathic and sadistic. And one of them shoots him and his response is, the poor wretch, he has a faulty gun. He has accidentally shot me five times. Oh, how I love him. And this is a fairly cynical way of showing how naivety can actually lead to a great deal of personal harm. Or to put it in another way, in Jackie Brown, when the villain, Odell Robbie, says, you can't trust Melanie, but you can always trust Melanie to be Melanie. Our bad experiences make us jaded. But there is something to be said for our cautious responses keeping us alive. We literally would not be here without that being part of our DNA. Though, on the flip side, that sense of mistrust in each other might be the thing that wipes us off the planet. Everyone who gets turned to stone uh, is, is in this sort of offering position. They're giving you the key to the, their own undoing. Like, you have to make that first step. So effectively, the people that you need to trust are the people that are worthwhile trusting. And that is unfortunately not really the major text of the film. They don't say there are scumbags that it is not worth wasting your trust on. Because they will just take and then kill you. And it's a reading, and it's not the only reading on it, but ultimately, if you're presented with a world that appears to be incredibly naive and oversimplifying, then you could take it as little kids, especially now, need to be able to see that renewal is possible, that we can come back from ruin. The generational thing was a, was quite a key element of it for me, actually. The And again, this is, it, this is primarily in the relationship between uh, Namari and... Varana. Uh, Namari and Varana have this this kind of generational, it's not a divide exactly, but in the few interactions of theirs that we see, you've got the older generation's fear and desire to maintain the status quo that Varana definitely has. Which heightens her daughter's anxiety. Exactly. And that clashes with Namari's recognition that there is a need for change but she feels powerless to be an agent of that change with her mother around. <laughs> and that was something that um, that I felt was quite, quite sharply there, but didn't really have enough room to breathe in the, in the conglomeration of yeah. everything else. Because ultimately, Namari's the one who does have to make the final move. Absolutely. And there is a twisted, symbolic reading of Kelly Marie Tran being cast as Raya, who would have, back in 2017, entered into a film called The Last Jedi, thinking, I'm finally going to be part of a Star Wars, and I'm going to be one of the first prominent Asian-speaking roles who's not a Fu Manchu alien. As you know, our blockade is perfectly legal. This is going to be some representation. I'm so proud to be part of this. Oh, this is going to be great. And then was confronted by... The kind of response from a lot of people bullied off Twitter almost immediately for being the worst character ever in Star Wars. Ahmed Best was almost driven to suicide by hate-filled Star Wars fans for playing maybe the worst character ever in Star Wars. So for Kelly, I think becoming incredibly jaded is justified. And yet somehow Tran has retained a measure of that 
optimism, a sweetness, a joy, embracing life and love, enough to be able to perform Raya in both ways. And and when Raya turns up with Kumandra at the end and, and, um, and her father wakes up again and everybody comes over the bridge and comes to share food with them, I, I actually, even the first time I saw it, I got really slightly annoyed that Verana just walks across that bridge and just is welcomed with everybody else and no conversation with her takes place over, hang on a minute. You shot me in the bollocks. <laughs> just everything <laughs> that she's done, everything that she has been a party to, it needs oh, no. Wait, to be addressed. Trust is binary. You can either completely trust and completely forgive someone or never trust and never forgive someone. Mm. Yes. <laughs> it's fine. It's a little reductive and uh, it's uh, almost a bad faith argument in something that's so pure and it's Disney. Mm. Um, but while it does lack nuance in that regard and seems to just run us through to the end and the conclusion of of, um, of, of absolutely sort of this, this heartfelt... You know what, if we all, you know, throw in together, we can save each other that way, yeah. which is a wonderful thing to, to it is. put and out I th- there. I, th- I think ultimately what it comes down to is that communicating that trust is a key part of being human and being able to relate to other humans is something that you can transmit to children en masse in a story. Yeah. What you can't do is teach those children whose experiences and home lives and areas of the world and economic circumstances are all going to be vastly different, is who do you trust, how much, when do you not, where do you draw the lines, that kind of thing. Because they don't handily show up all covered in purple and and just looking like big glowy monster things. Sometimes there are people who look like Minamari and then turn out to betray you, which yeah. they do, But at the, which she does at the beginning. But the uh, overall thesis of the film is you should trust Namari, even though she will betray you, and she should trust you is the more important thing. Yeah, yeah. But that process of learning who to trust and how is part of growing up and becoming an adult, and that is not something that Disney is really in the best place yeah. to communicate. On the other hand, there were a couple of things about this that I really, really liked in terms of kind of firsts for Disney. Um, Frozen was a really great example of two girls both sharing the spotlight, two lady uh, leads, and the men are effectively in support. That doesn't happen very often. There's almost always a breeder pair where you get a handsome guy and a handsome girl. And technically that is there with Fran. No, that's the Christoph. reindeer. I always mix them up. With that's okay. So does he. With Kristoff, um, although luckily they haven't heteronormatively paired off Elsa, so they haven't at least um, done that. Mm-hmm. But in this, there is no heteronormative male opposite for Raya. No one she's obviously going to end up with, mm. and. You know, obviously, I think uh, Bob pointed out that fanfic writers or slash fic writers are just going to go straight into the uh, Raya Namari relationship. So they don't necessarily have to take those steps themselves. Mm. But the idea of it being about not just two, but three female leads, it's got it's just brimming over with feminine energy. Mm. 
which for a, an action adventure is rare. Yeah, and Moana doesn't have that pairing off energy either. So true. Also that, true. that's clearly something that they are willing to continue with. Yeah. Or they've picked up on is not really what audiences want these days. Yeah. It's so refreshing. Yeah, we'll do that ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> we don't just, need your help. Just give us the materials. <laughs> but that's the thing. Frozen 2 was like, oh, well, there's this uh, uh, lady here um, that uh, Elsa might like to get to know, but we're not really going to give you much of her. And there's this guy here who Kristoff uh, might want to know, but we're not going to give you much here. It just it, it felt a little um, like they were giving us table scraps when it comes to pairing off. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's still better than, and they were doing this all the way up to, um, uh, to really relatively recent years. Here is the princess, or here is the female lead, and here is the male lead, and let's just make sure that they get married at the end. Or they're definitely with each other at the end. So this one not being concerned with that was deeply refreshing in that capacity. It really is. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's... I mean, that, I think that's pretty much right in The Last Dragon. Is there any, any other uh, details that we haven't mentioned in this luscious, luscious film? Uh, I love Tuk Tuk, and I have a weird little soft spot for those exploding glitter bugs. Toot, toot and booms? Toot and booms, yeah. yeah. I, just, I just thought, <laughs> visually, I love that. Just mm. the idea that there are these, that they're considered to be a vaguely threatening thing, and yet the result is everything's covered in glitter. It just reminded me of Birds of Prey. Cute. <laughs> Sisu, when she's human, which was just, just made her even more charming, um, had... She's got Aquafina's teeth. There's a very specific kind of crooked grin that Aquafina gives, uh, and she just totally has that incorporated into her character. It's very distinctive and made it feel more personal. As a British person, I appreciate crooked teeth. But also, she's more charming because she's human, because we can still see the dragon. It's like The Last Unicorn, only fun. Big fan of The Last Unicorn. I'm sure she'll be put in Space Jam 2 so that kids can find out about that movie from a BuzzFeed article. Dan, anything mm-hmm. else you want to... Yeah, I've yacked on for a good I, 10 minutes. <laughs> I have I want to see more of this setting, but I mm. think, uh, like, I, you, in you mentioning, like, vi- the video gaminess of its objectives and things like that just made me keep on thinking, man, this would be a fun setting to explore. Honestly, though, it's just kind of reinforcing for me. Just, I... I'm so happy we have a story inspired by this set of cultures. And now I want more. I like hope it kicks the door open and now we get more of them and even like better, more thorough, more grounded in each of these actual cultures, uh, examples of representation. Yeah, go like, back to their mythology this, and, and bring that to the screen in an, in an yeah. authentic way. Like, there was this one um, quote I read from uh, someone named uh, Bing Chen, who I think was a member of the, uh, uh, just someone who was brought in on the like kind of brain trust for mm-hmm. this. Uh, they run a nonprofit called Gold House, which is uh, sort of all about pushing for more authentic representation of Asians and Pacific Islanders. And uh, they said, like, I love firsts for our community because we need the firsts to get to the nexts. Yeah. And it's in the nexts where we'll keep on improving and making and doing better and more faithful representation. And and I think it will keep continue to keep on growing the appetite to learn more about and see more of these cultures in mm. audiences worldwide like that's it, it's this is a good start and i am really excited and hopeful that there will be more create like whether it is raya and this sort of fictional setting 
or other fictional settings inspired by these cultures or just more stories in and of and ideally from these cultures. Mm. I, I want to see them. Yeah. The Southeast Asia Story Trust. Might I suggest, Disney, that unlike the Moana one, you don't disband this one <laughs> after you've finished and you've uh, uh, got your money for the uh, amazingly successful, still maybe my favorite Disney film. Um, it's funny that you mentioned the whole video game thing, because I was talking about this when we did Tangled and how absolutely luscious that uh, that whole kingdom felt and the, um, the feeling like you could walk into the screen and explore. Same with Frozen and um, you know, Wreck-It Ralph as well, ultimately what Disney are now becoming really accomplished at in a way that a lot of their competitors aren't quite as good at is building worlds that feel like you would really like to go in and and explore them this is partly why Disney Infinity bugged me because it they did not capitalize on that well if it's any consolation i guarantee you there's no way that raya and that and the Commander world is not appearing in a kingdom hearts game someday <laughs> Yeah, that's a fine point. Yeah. So, okay. Granted, you got to put up with a lot of Kingdom Hearts for that. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, I don't, I don't, I hear it's a really simple, straightforward story to uh, to grasp, but I think you could probably pick it all up in like just a ten minute uh, refresher. Is that right? Oh yeah, I'll write it all down on a note card and mail it. To <laughs> Oh lord! Could you, could you sum it up in a tweet? <laughs> yeah, just just. A, I think three tweets max. Put you know one one tweet per game, maybe. Oh yeah. My brand new audio drama, Stone Spring Maidens, adapted from the paperback book available on Amazon, starts next week on the New Century Multiverse podcast feed. And I specifically wanted to play this clip for those of you fans of Disney out there who are getting kind of sick of if there's any kind of relationship, it must be either heteronormative, familial, or platonic. Stone Spring Maidens takes place in the world of Autumn, with an ancient, elfin, matriarchal species who focus on crystal punk art, design, and technology. And this will tell you a little bit about them. In the evening, safely back on terra firma, Gani and Attar made their excuses and went their separate ways. The two ladies who remained were walking the lamplit streets once again, happily engaged in conversation. Harry broached the complicated subject of married names. I can't work out how you do it. Do the wives take the husband's name, or does he take both of theirs? Ugh, don't even get me started on how silly this all can get. Penny groaned. You're all supposed to share the name of the dominant woman, but some women are both so dominant that they can't decide and have to double-barrel it. Then you get your Smythe Chenoweths and your Goldwater Lakes, and sometimes those families want to keep the names of their mothers, and it gets even more complicated with four or five surnames. And you have to say all of them or they get offended. It's... It's a way of keeping some things more important than they probably should be. And the man's mother's name just disappears? He gets absorbed by the women. A very few rare male-female couples go by his name only. And it's almost always because the woman loves and cherishes the man so much that she doesn't mind the challenges of keeping that name. Come on over here, I've something fairly marvelous to show you. 
They crossed the street and made towards a square of light in a small, lovingly appointed park area. Taking your partner's name is a sign of respect and adoration. Same where I come from, I suppose. Was, uh, Calendula the one with the Renwick family name? Yes, look down there, said Penny briskly. They were standing at the railings around the wide square, when Harry realised she was looking at a sheet of reinforced glass, underneath which was a vast cavern, with crystal-powered lights descending down level after level of ancient underground ruin. She could make out carven architecture, fallen pillars, engraved language and imagery, and in the shadows, a sense of depth that quite boggled the mind. She felt almost as high up as when she had stood upon the Gallia deck earlier that day. This is what remains of the City of Men, Penny said with some theatricality. Gabriella is built upon the bones of Diantum, their subterranean capital. She indicated several plaques that Harry could not read, but which were bordered by blueprint layouts of what was beneath them now. I'm not a historian, though I do find this fascinating. They lived here long, long ago, until the Brazil Empire collapsed. Ever since then, women have been in charge. You're faltering too, though, Harry said quietly, gazing down into the depths. Y you said your people were entering a final winterfall. She looked up with concern and met Penny's gaze. Aren't you afraid? I suppose we all are. And I'm frequently very afraid. That's why I like to come here and look at the ruins. It gives me a measure of peace and comfort to know that our species screwed up so badly in the past, and yet we're still here. If a ruin can be observed, then the past is still alive. This was all said so carefully that it quite took Harry's breath away. Something powerful was moving in Harry's chest, drawing her towards Penny, and there was a look in the lady's eye that was inviting her. She had noticed the first morning how Penny's skin, like all Elaine, seemed to have a light textured diamond pattern across it when you got close, which Harry longed to brush up against and feel. So, this civilization of men? Yes, let's talk about men. And if this sounds like your thing, you don't actually have to have read or listened to any of the previous entries. This is an LGBTQIA+, period, drama, romance, sci-fi. And it functions perfectly well on its own. So go find the New Century Multiverse podcast feed and slam that subscribe button. Both the New Century Multiverse and School of Movies are funded by Patreon. And we've lost some supporters over the past year which is entirely understandable given everyone's job situation right now. So I just want to extend a very special thank you to everyone who stuck with us. I will say, if this is costing you money and you're currently worried about money, we'll be okay if you need to stop or pause or adjust the amount or wait until the situation improves. Everyone has been hit by this. Except, of course, Jeff Bezos and a bunch of other billionaires who became even wealthier somehow, but Sharon and I will be okay. Support us if you can and want to. It's possible none of you lost a dime last year and we've just been doing shitty shows. And I'd actually prefer that 
to the idea of our listeners struggling. Because, you know, if we're shit, you can tell us and we can get better. So if anyone on Twitter goes, hey, your show sucks, I'm going to be like, oh, thank goodness. My fondest hope is that we can just get through this with the minimum of casualties and the minimum of loss. There never was much hope. Just a fool's hope. And as always, our $15 sponsors get special name check credit every episode. So, thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And I want to give a very special shout out to Joel Robinson. He's been an incredibly generous patron for years on end. Vocal, chatty, supportive. Joel died late last year. I got an email from his sister who told me through Patreon what had happened. I'm still reeling from it. You know, he's a guy I never met but spoke to often who believed in us. He was a medical director and a physician in the military and he had only just retired at the age of 39. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep including his name in the list of the credits you just heard for as long as I do podcasts. And since Stone Spring Maidens is a book all about healing, it's dedicated to Joel. I think that will about do it for Disney for the time being. Like We ended on the high note I wanted to after a couple of uh, shaky uh, stepping stones. And uh, Dan, thank you so, so much for joining us again. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. And would you like to tell the folks at home where they can find the work you're most proud of? Oh, right. Okay, so I've got two uh, YouTube channels that I run. One's called New Frame Plus, which is a channel about uh, video game animation, kind of like the craft and the art of it. And is where I just try to analyze uh, the animation in a variety of games and explain why it works or doesn't. I just released a feature film about the animation in the Sonic series, which took way too long. I'm not. I'm never going to do that again. But I'm proud of the video. So I. <laughs> I was like, j- am I reading this time wrong? It's like an, an hour and a half. <laughs> I am like, I haven't. Like, that's what we're watching tonight, by the way. Oh, I, think, I hope you enjoy it. Took a very long time, but I'm very proud of it. Excellent. Uh, and I also do a daily Let's Play channel uh, with my wife Carrie uh, called Playframe. And those are the two things I do, and that takes up all the time. And we will be back next week to coincide with the release of Resident Evil 8, colon, The Attack of the Giant Woman. Oh my god, it's something that she uses to make her nails smaller! It's gigantic! (laughs) With our show on the remake of Resident Evil Nemesis. And we're going to end on Lead the Way, sung by Hasta, Venser, and Dana Paola. (laughs) Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And... School's out. <laughs>